The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 13th of November, 2013, in which we discuss process improvement. So, Brian, are you normal? Well, I like to think that I exist somewhere around the mean and maybe uh, orthogonal to a plane. <laughs> well, certainly uh, normal is kind of a uh, uh, multi-purpose word. Uh, you know, we can use it for describing behavior, whether somebody's acting normally or not. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, a vector can be normal. And we sometimes use normal for uh, describing a distribution. If uh, if the distribution has a uh, nice uh, bell-shaped curve, a Gaussian curve, then we may call that normal. But, you know, for, for engineers, we, we spend a lot of time on uh, looking at forces or currents or reaction rates and uh, usually statistics and the, the whole bit of uh, quality control gets kind of thrown off into some two-week section of a course that is sort of the catch-all for all the other things that they don't know where to fit into their normal curriculum. Despite that, you know, quality control is an important part, an important part of uh, many manufacturing processes and, and other uh, systems. So it's important that engineers know something about that. Uh, do you have a chance to use SPC, statistical process control, in your work, Brian? Uh, typically not much. I've done a lot of, uh, low and medium volume stuff, not really hitting the, uh, appropriate sample sizes. Hmm. Uh, I, I, a lot of electrical engineers, uh, doing high volume production, uh, and anyone working in, you know, the business, uh, related to silicon is certainly going to be implementing that. I was talking with Adam before we started the podcast, and he was mentioning that it's tough to do any kind of quality control on road construction. You know, it's not like you're making the same bit of road a million times. Uh, every mile of road is a little different. I could be wrong, but typically I, I tend to think of uh, uh, statistical analysis as being something useful in the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions of unit production. But then again, I could be wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're, uh, Carmen is not with us this evening, but uh, I haven't used, I mean, when I work for a medical device company, we use process control uh, on the on the plant floor. And so I, you know, I, I know some of the terminology and a bit about what it means, but uh, you've indicated, Brian, that you don't have a chance to use it a lot. And, and uh, Adam, in his work on the road crew, doesn't. Yeah, I've never, never heard any of this sort of this stuff. Our, our guest this evening for this episode is uh, Erica Lee Garcia, who's a uh, professional engineer in Canada who helps businesses improve from the inside out. And uh, she's certified in problem-solving methods such as Lean and Kaizen and Six Sigma. And in addition to consulting with businesses, she assists young and mid-career engineers align their professional duties with personal aspirations. Welcome to the Engineering Commons, Erica. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So I, I'm excited. We're going to learn about uh, a little bit about Six Sigma this evening. Sounds good to me. So, Erica, what got you interested in engineering? Wow. Well, I think I have to go back probably to me as a little child growing up in the country, about eight years old, and I discovered I had an extraordinary fondness for getting my rain boots on and going out and digging in the puddles in our driveway. Okay. I loved nothing more than to excavate these very intricate systems of canals and 
tunnels between the between the different puddles that that were left in our driveway and it was sort of at that moment I realized I had this sort of zest for getting out there and and digging things up and moving things around and making things you know different um I don't know if I'd sort of graduated into thinking I was improving anything at that point but it was definitely at that point I realized I I really loved to kind of get in there and literally get dirty um, right. <laughs> and when I, when I got a little older, I had to put the dishes away as a young teenager. And instead of, you know, sort of being willing to do that, I decided I needed to invent a machine that would put them away for me. So this was my first, uh, my first engineering design it was a very elaborate system of conveyor belts <laughs> that uh, magically stayed up in the air. It was, they were really amazing that way. Uh, this design was quite extraordinary, but anyway, at that point, I started to to realize that I really liked uh, to think about conceiving of new things. And um, from that point on, I guess you know, in high school, I really loved the idea of the periodic table being sort of like a master key to the universe. You know, this is sort of everything you need. This is everything that everything is made of. And I loved the idea that you could sort of boil things down to their constituent parts and really understand what they're made of and how they can. Uh, they can sort of be reimagined even better. So that's how I knew I was an engineer. <laughs> Erica, I'm going to steal that term. I love the idea of a master key to the universe. Right? That's so cool. I can, I, uh, the, I can put it in the same bag as my hitchhiker's guide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I was very uh, I was very intrigued by that idea. And, you know, maybe still am. I, I really believe that engineers do really important work that we set the scene for a lot of the important things that happen in the world. And we enable the, the quality of life that we have these days. A lot of the things that people take for granted around them are, are due to engineers. And I think there's a, there's a real pride in that, that, uh, that I share with a lot of, a lot of my fellow engineers. Now, my question is, did you ever get that dishes putting away device working? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? People ask me that I wasn't really the tinkerer or like the make things work person i was the ideas person you know back then so unfortunately the uh the prototypes have yet to be uh yet to be realized but i still thought that it was a good idea wouldn't that be great like a self-suspending conveyor brilliant i applaud you for going to conveyor because i think my first thought would have been dish cannon Yeah, I think, you know, I even I think I went as far as to realize that I'd need some kind of little clamp device that would pick up the plates and take them off the end of the conveyor. Like, I think I kind of had that um, mechanism in mind. <laughs> anyway, yeah, early warning signs, I call them. So given your uh, aptitude for uh, moving dirt, which would indicate maybe a career in civil engineering, in <laughs> civil engineering, and your aptitude for conveyor belts, which would suggest mechanical engineering. Uh, did you end up in either of those fields of engineering in your um, studies? You know, I didn't. I ended <laughs> up, I had a, a common first year in, in the university that I chose, which is Queen's. Um, and after, you know, the first year rolled around, I sort of looked at the available disciplines and by, it was more by a process of elimination than anything than anything else that I chose materials and metallurgical engineering. So on the one hand, we had uh, the courses about ceramics and polymers, a lot of material science um, 
sort of uh, courses. And then on the other hand, we had the metallurgy. So it was kind of a neat sort of mix of the old school and the new schools of, uh, of the materials of the world, I guess, consistent with my fascination with the periodic table. And, uh, it, but in the end, my first job when I graduated was in manufacturing. So I actually sort of came full circle on the conveyor belts thing. So you ended up in manufacturing, did you? Yeah, the, um, I guess the thing that got me the job was the fact that I had the metallurgy background because it was a powder metal factory that I worked at. So do you know the, the technology, the powder metal process? I, I know they take powdered metal and they bang it, you know, smash it real hard into a mold and it makes, uh, it makes a solid. You got it. It's kind of magical, actually. I, you know, it's, uh, it's this, yeah, like you said, this dust that get, that gets made into this green compact that's extremely fragile and then you bake it and then it becomes a solid thing. Is it a sintering process? Exactly. Yeah. It's a sintering, sintering, uh, furnace. And the sintering furnace was actually the scene of my first great professional triumph, um, because the furnace belts kept breaking and we couldn't figure out why. And I got put on as the junior engineer to sort of run the samples and run around and try to help figure out why we, it was the first continuous improvement team I was ever on. And we were trying to, you know, first of all, find out what, what, what were the root causes of these breakages? Um, how could we prevent them? How could we start to look for the indicators that the break was coming and then do some kind of preventative measure to make sure that we weren't costing ourselves all this downtime and all this bother? Because basically every time the furnace belt snapped, um, as you can imagine, it's this big, long, you know, maybe, uh, 40, 40 meter long, uh, conveyor belt. You have to go inside. You have to power down the furnace. You have to get a mechanic to crawl inside, pull it back together. Um, it was just a terribly time consuming process. And as you might know, in manufacturing, time is money and time is often an angry customer if you can't get it together and, and get the shipment out on time. So this was a real pressure cooker situation. We were really on the clock to try and figure out what this problem, uh, what this problem was. And sure enough, we solved it and we were able to completely eliminate the, uh, the breakages in the furnace belt. So that was my first taste of continuous improvement methodologies. And I, I really loved it. And so was it, was it difficult to move from the, uh, the idea stage to the implementation stage? You know, that first project, uh, there were no stages. I mean, it was just this mass, you know, rush to the finish line to try and figure out what was going on. It was, it was really exciting, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were just anything to try and get the, get the problem to stop. So I guess, yeah, what did, what did we try out? We just, we were trying out theories, basically. It felt like a game of detective that we were playing, like a mystery we were trying to solve. It's, it seems in a lot of ways that a lot of lean activities are truly just stripped down versions of the scientific method. Would I mean, was that your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that when you bring together a team to figure out what's going on, I mean, for lean specifically, you're, you're trying to figure out what the repeat process is, what the common elements are to any given thing that you're trying to accomplish, whether it's uh, something on the manufacturing floor, you're, uh, centering something or you're assembling something or even let's say in an administration process, maybe you're trying to hire somebody or you're trying to get a PO issue for a certain thing that you're buying. Um, mm -hmm. The same methodology applies. So you're capturing current state, you're testing out a hypothesis about what's wrong, 
and then you're implementing it and making sure that that solution stays implemented. So yeah, I would say that there are a lot of common things that you borrow from the scientific, uh, the scientific method. You, you maybe take time to really document certain things under certain conditions and maybe skip over them in other cases. That's where sort of the experience comes in. I'm sorry. I kind of jumped ahead there because, uh, no, that's okay. I, uh, we haven't quite introduced lean uh, versus or including Six Sigma. Yes, Brian, I, I've told you, you must stick to the script. There's no jumping ahead. <laughs> no. Uh, but uh, for my lean days, I, rec- I I took part in many a continuous improvement event. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a nerd who gets super excited, but I just I find it fascinating that you can you bring people together, you get everyone's perspective on what's going on in the process. You find out how it's affecting them and what the gaps are between the performance, maybe the way it was designed to operate or what's supposed to be happening and then what actually is happening. Mm-hmm. And then often you'll see that people are doing a lot of sort of spinning their wheels in order to get it. They're, they're putting little band-aids on the process that you maybe don't know about or that the engineers who designed the process never intended. And, you know, you, you pull together a complete picture of what's going on in the present, um, the present state. And then you sort of apply various methods, as you know, to uh, to figure out how you can get rid of some of those gaps between plan and actual. And uh, you set yourself up so you can measure it properly, so you can tell what the impact is. And um, I, I guess, you know, just to jump into your question about the difference between Lean and Six Sigma, um, Six Sigma is all about getting rid of variation, whereas Lean is all about getting rid of waste. And sometimes they're one and the same, but the approaches are somewhat different in that lean is more focused on what's the difference between what needs to be delivered to the customer, like the value of what needs to be delivered to the customer. And Six Sigma is also concerned with the voice of the customer, but it looks at it from a a perspective of how can we make the same thing happen every time. So Sigma, as you know, measure of standard deviation in a process you want your sigma to be as small as possible. So small, in fact, that you can fit six of them inside your specification limits. That's the definition of a six sigma process. So 3.4 parts per million. Yeah, that's what I was going to get. I was going to ask you how many parts yeah. per million. Exactly. Yeah, I, it's been a while since I did pure six sigma for a lot of the problems that you encounter in sort of everyday life. You know, if it's a business administration process or... Um, I, I worked in mining for a little while after I moved over from manufacturing to mining. And we found that the Six Sigma methods were just a little bit of overkill because there was a lot of improvement. There were a lot of opportunities for improvement, which is the you know shop talk for problems. There were a lot of problems, but we say opportunities for improvement um, that didn't need Six Sigma. You know, Six Sigma would have been this very big, heavy hammer that we could have dropped down on them when really they just needed you know, a, a smaller, a smaller tool to, to capture the value. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm nerding <laughs> out a little bit, but hopefully oh, you guys pick up what I'm putting down. Absolutely. So, uh, how did you gain your background in uh, statistical process control? Well, funny story. I took statistics in university and I really didn't like it, didn't get it, thought it was boring. And it wasn't until I was in the workforce, got selected to go through the Six Sigma Black Belt training that I actually started to enjoy statistics and realize how valuable it was and how good it was to pay attention to, um, you know, all of these 
the Z score and the the T test and all of these things that I had previously thought, you know, God, when am I ever going to use this? Because they were tools to use with my mystery, uh, you know, furnace belt avenging team. Like that's when they came alive for me and I really started to enjoy them. So I went through the Six Sigma black belt training as a young engineer in training and then I worked my way through two projects in the, the manufacturing company that I was working for at the time. Saved, I think, $350,000 in my first two projects. So not a ton of savings, but, um, one was, a uh, pretty good when you think, you know, manufacturing's, uh, they're, they're pretty well controlled, well run processes for the most part. Um, in contrast, when we moved over to the mining company, there was just opportunity lying all over the place. It was insane. We saved in, in the millions across the across the breadth of the whole company. So it's a target rich environment. Exactly. Yes. It was also a gold mining company, so that, that <laughs> helps as well. <laughs> so where does uh, the term statistical process control fit in relative to lean and six sigma? Well, I guess the term statistical process control is is sort of a general umbrella term for everything you do to monitor your process, to pay attention to it, to make sure it's behaving the way you want Mm -hmm. it to behave. And the whole reason that you care about that is because you want as little variation as possible in the case of a high volume uh, production situation like automotive manufacturing, for example. Anytime the theory is anytime something goes a little bit off track, that's going to cost you time and money down the road. So I guess the, the charts that the machine operators will fill out, they'll take a couple of samples, a couple of parts every hour, depending on what the requirement is, um, and plot them out. And you'll see over time, whoa, the, that size is starting to get a little smaller, must mean that the tool is worn, so we need to change the tool. Um, that, that sort of thing. They can use, it's basically taking the, the data from the process and, and changing it into useful information that can be used to manage the process properly and save you time and money. I guess in a larger sense, you know, although they maybe don't use statistical process control in that same way, a lot of companies have embraced lean and Six Sigma continuous improvement methodologies. Um, for example, Goodwill is a great example. The, the secondhand clothing outlet, I think you have those in the States too, right? Yep. Yes, we do. Yeah, they're actually, they've done a lot of work on uh, Lean, Six Sigma, and Kaizen events to uh, really streamline their processes, the way that they, they receive um, the clothing and the way that they distribute. They're, they're really, really lean, and it's, it's, it's really well done because they've invested that, uh, that time and that, those resources to, to make sure that they're, they're monitoring their processes and, and improving them. So it's not just for the factory floor. Right. And you threw in a new term there, Kaizen. Could you give us a yeah, definition for that? Sure. Uh, well, it's a Japanese word, as many of these words are, and it means fast change. Um, change for the better, depending on how you translate it. Um, and basically, the idea is that people sit down in a room to accomplish in three or four days what it might take a Lean or Six Sigma team six to eight months to accomplish. Um, it's sort of a, a improvement on steroids. <laughs> now, it, it's it's great when you can manage it, when you can get the resources to, you know, put put those people aside and really get them to focus, do sort of an improvement blitz and get them to implement things uh, during the time 
you have to, obviously you have to do a lot of work to uh, remove roadblocks, allow them to make decisions, empower them to actually implement things. Um, but when you can get it moving, it's, it's quite a thing of beauty. You can show really dramatic changes in just a couple of days. And why are so many of the words in lean uh, Japanese? <laughs> well, I believe that originates from, um, you know, back in the, in the sort of 50s and 60s, Toyota and Honda, a lot of those companies were sort of on the leading edge of this quality revolution. Um, Dr. Edward Deming worked with the Japanese, kind of brought a lot of those, me- those methods back over. Um, and the, the Japanese words have just sort of stuck with them. Um, because there's a lot within, um, you might be familiar with some of the books that have been written about Toyota. Um, Jeffrey Liker, I think, has a couple mm-hmm. of them. Toyota Culture, Toyota Methods, the Toyota Production System. The Toyota Way, I think. The Toyota Way, that's it. Yeah, so the, the TPS, Toyota Production System, is uh, a system that's been mimicked by so many different companies that want to see the, you know, the total results um, of what that are similar to what Toyota has been able to produce in, in terms of quality and, uh, you know, reducing their costs. And it's, it's pretty interesting because there are a lot of the, the cultural influences of the Japanese culture and the way that they do things, um, that have, that have sort of filtered down that even you'll, you'll see within Honda and Toyota today. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. And it's all about the, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the Muda. Yeah, muda is the Japanese word for waste. So that's where the lean, um, the lean idea of having just what it is that the customer wants, that's what's of value, and everything else is muda, it's waste. So you should look at ways to either eliminate it or get, uh, eliminate it or streamline it as much as you can. And I think this is a, a kind of a neat idea that I think people can really use in their everyday lives. Um, something I actually use with my, the clients that I coach and mentor is what you're doing right now, this thing that you're investing resources in, is it getting you to where you want? Is this of value to you? If, you know, the end customer is your goal in life, is what you're doing now contributing to that or is it a waste? Not to be too harsh on people, right? But just it's it's a good clarifying tool, I think. And um, sometimes it is really just as simple as getting a group of people together to look at what to look at what's happening. Well, this is the way that I interact with the process. And this is that the way that you interact with the process. What is it that we're doing that's necessary? And what is it that we're doing that could be eliminated, that we could put some technology on that we could give to somebody else to do that we could actually just do our steps in a different order. And then, ah, look at that, that eliminates the need to do this. Um, anytime you can reduce the number of handoffs in a process, for example, reduce the amount of wait time, reduce the number of people that get CC'd on things maybe because they maybe don't need to be involved in the process. Those are all examples of muda or waste that can be eliminated. So I find that pretty fun to do. Now, the Japanese influence, I assume, is the reason that we refer to people who have uh, training in uh, uh, Six Sigma as having black belts. But I never hear anyone talking about, well, I'm going for my green belt or my yellow belt as they might if they were uh, studying judo say um, so so what is the what is the typical training path for someone who's trying to come up to speed on uh, on this uh, technology ah interesting so the path of the belts that i know about is white belt first then yellow uh yellow belt then green belt 
then sometimes brown belt, then black belt, then master mm-hmm. black belt. So um, myself, I started as a black belt because I had sort of the educational background and, and the experience to go straight into black belt, um, depending on the amount of time and energy that the um, that the company wants to invest in you, you might just get yellow belt or green belt training. So the leaders of the projects are the green belts and the black belts, and the supporters of the projects are the white belts and the yellow belts. So you won't necessarily have to go through every single one, but let's say a machine operator or a quality quality technologist or someone who's basically contributing to the process um, will do yellow belt, which is sort of, sorry, white belt, which is sort of the very basics of of the methodologies and just explaining to them like these are going to be your responsibilities and this is in general the goal that we're trying to accomplish yellow belt gets a little bit more detail about how the the process the statistical process control tools work what the measurements are what the goals are of each phase of the project so it goes define measure analyze improve control the yellow belts will know a little bit more about that it can take on a little more responsibility green belts can run their own projects um, but they're often not as complex. Um, and then the black belts are the ones that, that drive the projects. And there are different definitions, but in general, the black belts will be responsible for projects that save over $100,000 in value, or they have projects that last six to nine months, whereas the green belts may be more like three to six months and less than $100,000. Hmm. And is there some standard body that says this is what qualifies is this level belt or is that pretty much up to the organization to to assign those uh, ratings yeah that's a good question i feel as though companies often figure it out as they go i know that there are some organizations uh there's the kaizen institute the american society for quality have different standards um, I think there are other private companies as well that offer the the training and the consulting. Um, that's one of the interesting things about, you know, the Six Sigma world is that there isn't one sort of uh, regulating body that I know of, but there is, it's sort of generally accepted that if you've got your black belt, it means that you've actually done two projects. So it's not like you go, you write the exam, you, you know, you, you get the, you get the uh, degree right away. You have to actually go through, you have to do the project, you have to get it signed off by uh, the appropriate people, um, which means the talking to the finance people. So that's one of the funnest parts of, of being a Six Sigma <laughs> black belt is you get to go talk to the finance people and say, hey, here's what I'm seeing in the data from the production floor. In theory, that should mean we're losing this much money on this problem. What do you think? And, and seeing if the finance way of looking at the world squares up with the engineering and production way of looking at the world, that's that's a really interesting challenge in itself that I, I got to witness firsthand when I did my projects. Um, I got the signatures, though, so I did end up getting my black belt. <laughs> and, and do you have any examples of where the engineering way of looking at things was completely askew from the financial way of looking at it? Oh, gosh. Oh, all the time. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it really opens your eyes, I think, to the way that measurement systems uh, and statistics can be amenable to different interpretations and selective versions of the truth. You have to be very, uh, I guess, scrupulous with your data. You have to be really honest and, and, and really try to look at things objectively rather than saying, oh, well, let's just 
pull off this slice of the data and only look at this piece so that, you know, we look good because this, this isn't where the problem is. Um, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So I think that the, um, you know, no, no accounting system is perfect. No, um, no engineering measurement system can, can look at everything, but getting the two to harmonize sometimes, yeah, sometimes takes some doing. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the things that I did in the second company that I worked for was develop a standard for calculating the value of improvement projects. And I know that sounds like the least interesting thing in the world, but it was actually really, really useful for us because we then had this common vocabulary that we could use to compare notes on, um, you know, this is how much we've saved and we have some sort of legitimacy, some method around the assumptions that we make in the calculation. Right. Well, and that's, that's something that at a couple of companies that can, I mean, or many organizations can be an issue. Can it not, uh, kind of bloat in the estimation of savings? Yeah. Well, and it's so hard to say sometimes too, because in theory, we, we saved this much money because let's say your project is a scrap reduction project Mm -hmm. and you've now gone from 10% scrap down to 4% scrap. That 6% represents, you know, and you multiply it out and you say it's this many pieces and it's this many, Mm -hmm. this much unit cost. Um, but then there may be ways that that falls down. Like maybe those pieces don't all get scrapped. Maybe some of them get reworked or maybe we actually just buy less or maybe we produce less and that's okay. Like there, there are lots of ways where a theoretical calculation of value does not translate to actual value. And I guess that's actually a better explanation of why things in the financial world don't necessarily stack up against Mm -hmm. what's going on on the production floor. So that's, yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the great uh, debates that you, that you need to have within your organization from a leadership and management point of view. It's very important to have buy-in from all parts of your organization saying, yes, this person that we're, that we're celebrating and we're, you know, patting them on the back and giving them a certificate and saying, way to go. You're a black belt. We need everybody to be on board with believing that that's something that's of value because a, it's a really big investment to train someone to become a, a black belt or to, you know, to be a, um, even a lean practitioner. And if people don't get it, if they're suspicious of it, they're like, what is this? This sounds like, sounds kind of flaky, doesn't understand. You know, if, if people aren't on board, then it's definitely going to fail because it's not just about implementing tools and about, um, putting projects in place. It's also about the culture and changing the way that people think in the company, getting them really on board with this idea that there's always a better way to do things is the only way that you're going to be able to maintain all of these projects and that you're going to really sustain the benefits of these things. It's, it's, it's like the ROI that you get from doing all this training and putting all this work into the projects. You really need to make sure that the culture is then sort of pinning down those benefits and keeping them in place after, you know, as a black belt, you can't watch your project, you know, for eter- eternally, uh, indefinitely. You need to turn your back and go work on something else. So if the people who own the process haven't bought into what you're doing, um, it's not going to last very long and you're not going to see the value. You're not going to see the value that you promised in your schnazzy financial evaluation. <laughs> well, and, and it's the notion of continuous improvement seems, uh, at least in my experience with large groups, in an increasingly cynical world, it seems like a very foreign concept. Hmm. You know, uh, you know, 
I, I think when you, I've noticed, and 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 maybe you have, but it's it's really cool to see that people start continuous improvement projects, kind of like, what am I doing here? And and then when they really get involved in trying to make the place better, it actually, you know, it changes people's perspective on the company or the organization they're a part of. I think that's such a good point. I mean, it, it really is a win-win situation. It's good for the company because they save money. It's good for the employees because they don't have to put band-aids on stupid broken processes mm-hmm. that don't really work. You know, it, it's, it reduces stress for people. It reduces interdepartmental conflict because no, it's your responsibility. No, it's your responsibility. Well, here's the procedure. It's been designed, you know, it's been, uh, it's been optimized and, and uh, divided up with everyone's input. Like, that it, it is a really great way to improve morale. And mm-hmm. I think you're right. It, it can take individuals a little bit of time to really get their minds around it and to believe it. And you're going to have some people that'll never get there. They'll, they'll always find a way to complain. You know, you, you, you give them a, a brand new pony and they'll, they'll say that it's feet are too big or something, you know? <laughs> um, but, but by and large, um, and I've seen this myself, it really gets people fired up. They really love this idea that they can make things better, that they can have an impact, that their ideas are important, that what they have to offer as say a person who's working on the shop floor on a, on a, on a process in a manufacturing plant, that their opinion matters, that they can be involved in making something better. That, that really means something to people. It's a really positive thing. So you, you said that these continuous improvement projects Everybody gets really gung ho and, and um, really likes that they can they can contribute. Um, I have experience mm-hmm. with a, a similar concept, um, but we've kind of hit a brick wall where it's really hard to get any more improvement. Do you, have you noticed that in a lot of your uh, experiences, where you get to a certain amount of improvement and then that next one percent is really hard to get? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, I think it's really good for everybody to understand that early on in the process, you're going to have a lot of low-hanging fruit, and it's going to be really nice. I mean, after the team sort of goes through their forming, storming, norming, and performing, and you actually start to get somewhere, as you've said, those those initial results can come much more easily than sort of later on in the process when you've basically already gotten all the easy problems fixed and now you're tackling the really fundamental stuff. I would say that if the process, as you said, you know, if it's only 1%, I would say leave it and work on something else, you know, call it a day, high five, everybody gets to, uh, everybody gets a pizza lunch and work on something else. Um, if that last 1% is critical to customer for some reason, and you really need to, uh, to tackle it, it's not appropriate to just leave it as it is then I would say that, you know, you need to really uh, manage everyone's expectations accordingly to keep the morale up because in a way it can be really invigorating to say, yeah, guys, you know, we, we've gone, we've come this far. Now this is the last little bit that's going to be really stubborn. We need to switch it up. We need to, you know, try some different tools. We need to bring in some mentorship or we need to, um, I don't know what they what they can do to really just intensify their efforts to to get that last little bit of improvement out of the process. But again, this is a leadership and management question. Um, is this the best value? Uh, is it the best uh, way of spending rather the the team's time? Could they be doing something else that would be saving the company more money 
and giving them more of that sense of accomplishment at the same time. If they sort of go hand in hand in general. So Erica, you mentioned uh, briefly in there, a, uh, I think a, a uh, shortcut to the processes of Six Sigma, you mentioned, uh, I think it was storming, norming, and performing. <laughs> uh, so are, are, is there a set uh, step, a set of routines that one typically goes through in, in Six Sigma analysis? Yeah, the the forming, storming, norming, and performing are actually the phases of team performance. So you bring together a group of people that have never worked together before that maybe represent, you know, historical enemies uh, like quality and production. You know, quality wants to slow things down and do everything perfectly and measure everything 15 times. Production wants to get them out the door yesterday. Um, you know, you're going to have some conflict at the beginning, and that's pretty typical. Um, you yeah. get those people together, you get them settled in and used to working together. Um, they'll have some productive, maybe some productive conflict at the beginning, and then they settle into a routine. So that's with any team I've found. It's not really unique to Six Sigma. The phases of a Six Sigma project are actually uh, define, measure, analyze, improve, control. So I can tell you a little bit about those if you want, or is that good enough just to say that those are the phases? <laughs> Well, you might mention a, a, just a quick, you know, quarter tour of, of those phases. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So define is all about figuring out what the problem is and you have to consult with uh, your management team. They're obviously heavily involved at this stage to help you get a, uh, an idea of which of all the ideas that are in your project hopper that are sort of on the list of things that you could be working on. No shortage of things to work on at any given time. Um, how do you pick the one that's going to give you the most value? So mm -hmm. that's the defined part. You put together your, um, you put together your charter, figure out what the scope of the problem is, what the important measurables are, how much you're going to move them, pull together your team. It's all the housekeeping that happens at the beginning to set up the project. Mm -hmm. Measure is all about validating your gauging systems. And this to me is so counterintuitive, or it was at the beginning when I was young and impatient and just wanted to jump in and solve the thing already, um, you take a lot of time to validate basically that your, that your uh, readings are accurate, that your gauges have been calibrated, that they've got um, the proper repeatability, uh, that basically that tells you that your data is correct. And when you think about it, it really makes a lot of sense to validate your measurement systems before you go ahead and start making all kinds of assumptions and interpretations based on the data. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised how often you find, oh, that gauge is out of calibration. Therefore, everything that we've been reading is, you know, six thousandths of an inch off. And that's actually a really big deal in, in, uh, in manufacturing terms. Right. Uh, so that's measure. Analyze is where you jump in and start doing the part of the, um, the scientific method, basically, as I think, uh, Brian was saying earlier. That's where you're analyzing all of the inputs and the outputs. You're figuring out which inputs are tied to certain outputs, whether it be through a correlation or a, a root cause relationship. Those root causes we're obviously super interested in. We want to isolate down on those root causes uh, that are most important to the output. And we do that through a series of experimentation. Um, sometimes we'll do a formal design of experiments or just sort of one-off uh, hypothesis tests. Mm -hmm. And often validating as we do through uh, the... Uh, through the statistics. So making sure that it's not just us looking at it and seeing what we want to see because we really think that's the answer, but actually do the numbers, um, do the numbers back that up. Mm -hmm. So data driven decision making. Uh, so once you've got that figured out, you've figured out what the, uh, 
what the key things are, the, the key factors that are at play, you will start to come up with some solutions that will address those factors. And this could be anything from a redesign of the process to adding something on. It could mean retraining people, redesigning a standard. Uh, there are any number of things you can implement during the improve phase. And uh, again, you have to test those out because you're working on your theory that uh, the root causes that you identified in the analyze phase should follow on that the uh, solutions you develop to address those root causes uh, will solve the problem. You absolutely have to validate it again. And then control is all about making sure that your solution stays in place. So I sort of think of this as the, the phase where you're all finished setting up your tent and you go around and you take some extra pegs and you nail them down. You know, you just you just really, really make sure that sucker's in really well because you're going to end up um, as a as a black belt. You're going to turn your back and work on something else eventually, and you want to make sure that it's that that solution stays where you put it. So a lot of the time, this is kind of a softer skill called change management, where you're convincing people that this is the right thing to do. Uh, hopefully, you've been bringing them along with you in the process. The key people that are going to influence the the sustainability of your project all along. But control is all about rewriting any kind of standards, making sure everyone's communicated to about the change, why it's important. You're setting in place um, and maybe some measuring and monitoring systems to make sure that um, you're keeping an eye on the process to make sure it doesn't regress to where it was. And then doing all of the things you need to do to close out the project. So sort of the mirror image of everything you did in Define you're measuring again, you're going back, you're doing all your calculations to show that you've saved that money and that you've really, um, you've really nailed that problem. You haven't just pushed it off into something else that mm-hmm. you've actually, uh, you've actually gotten it. So that's, that's a, a Demaic, the Six Sigma project method. Fantastic. And, and is there one stage that typically is the problem stage? Mm, analyze can be really tricky especially when you, you know, you're trying out theory after theory and you're not finding the magic bullet, you know, where is the, right. <laughs> where is that vital X? You know, we talk about the, the, the trivial many and the vital few, where is that vital X? If you can't find it, that can be really frustrating. I would say though, that they all sort of build on each other. And if you make them, if you make a mistake or if you don't say define the problem properly, um, or if you don't do the proper gauge validation, then it'll make everything after that harder. So they're all very much interconnected. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I always found interesting about this whole process was that it, at least as as the introductory courses that I had in it, was everything was based on a Gaussian curve. You you had a normal distribution and you assumed a normal distribution. Mm-hmm. But not, you know, the entire world is not made of normal distributions. And so when when, when does this lead you know, what problems are appropriate for this? What problems aren't appropriate? When do you have to worry about the fact that you don't have a normal distribution? Yeah, you know, I asked that in my course too. And I think I really, I, I remember getting a kind of a strange look, like, what do you mean? It's, if it's not normal, then you take away the data until it, it until it is normal, you know? Um, <laughs> and I think there, there is a little bit of wisdom in that because it, what, what my teacher was saying is that it shows two patterns of interference. So for example, if you've got a nice normal distribution with a big spike overlaid onto one end of it, it could be that you're seeing two separate effects 
one laying right on top of the other. Mm -hmm. And so if you address something that you would say that that's special cause variation, um, so special cause and common cause variation being the two sources of variation that you might see in a process. And, you know, common cause would be, say, if it takes you five to six minutes to drive to work in the morning, if you've got a really short commute. One and another, you know, special cause would be there's an accident on the highway and it takes you 15. Mm -hmm. Right. So it takes you well outside of what it should. So if you've got a bunch of data clumped up at the top end of your distribution that says there's something weird going on, maybe you need to address that specific cause and then that'll give you a normal distribution. Um, but to answer your question, sort of strictly, uh, strictly speaking, there are statistical tools for analyzing non-normal distributions, but it doesn't come up nearly as often as you think. Okay. Well, I remember reading that, that some of the, uh, you know, the reasons for the financial meltdown back in the, you know, 2007, 2008 timeframe, uh, was due to, uh, the financial people working, you know, around a normal distribution, but they didn't account for the fact that the, the distributions had much longer tails than they expected. And so when things, you know, things started going south very quickly, their system didn't know how to handle it because they didn't, you know, they never expected that kind of, uh, uh, quick change because it was, you know, beyond their, their probability curve. Huh. That's interesting. So it was a low probability event that caught up to them because they were pushing the system too far in one direction. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've seen from experience when you get low probability situations and you try to push them into a normal distribution, it doesn't work out. You have to look at something more like a negative binomial or something complicated. Obviously not in this context, though. I, I'm just thinking about this really cool talk that I saw. I think it was on the Lean Startup YouTube channel where the guy called Dan Millman was talking about how to look for problems. And he was talking about the five why, which is a, a root cause analysis tool um, used in certain uh, improvement projects, including Lean and sometimes Six Sigma to sort of compile everyone's knowledge about why things are happening. Why do we have this problem? Why does that machine keep breaking down or, 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 or that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. And he talked about the fact that there are sort of two potential causes. One is for this machine breaking down. One is because these belts are wearing ever so slightly, or these, you know, the bearing is, is wearing in a certain pattern. And over time, that becomes more and more problematic and then the machine breaks down and then you need to fix it again. Um, that's type one. And then type two is that maybe there's an ax murderer in your employee uh, population and he comes and basically, you know, chops up the person who's working on the machine and that results in downtime. And it, it was such a, it was such a funny image. Um, but his point was <laughs> that we often, assume that there is a moral cause that there is a moral failing happening in a particular problem um, rather than assuming that it's a it's a combination of sort of benign natural effects going on and he, he pointed out you know there's often a lot of blame and a lot of very sort of inflammatory um, sort of emotion that goes along with this root cause analysis because it's associated with this idea of blaming someone or saying it's their fault so uh, anyway I just I just think that's a it's a great story and i i mean i'm interested in the the context of the um the financial meltdown you know 
we wonder if, you know, where on the curve between uh, axe murderer and benign natural uh, causes converging together, where, where it might be. I think, I think it's a really interesting observation. So we talked up uh, at the top about, uh, or at least I did, about sample size. When, uh, when do you get to volumes where statistical uh, process control makes a lot of sense? Uh, it's, I know it's so va- such a vague question, but... Yeah. Um, I'm tr- okay, you're really testing me now. It's been a while since I did pure Six Sigma. I think the way that I've tended to look at it or the way that my, I and my uh, colleagues have looked at it is at what point does the massive amount of energy needed to do a proper Six Sigma statistical method become unjustified because you can tell what the problem is. It's right in front of you. You don't need to go to all that trouble to get a ton of data to figure out what it is, to analyze the root cause, to put a solution in place that works and to validate it. Or did you want a more numbers-based answer? (laughs) No, no, that's... I I recognize it's a qualitative answer. I was actually going to rephrase it. Is there What you kind of hit on, is there a volume that's low enough that it doesn't make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, um, well, it's maybe not the volume so much as it is the value of the problem or the cost of the problem. Because yeah. really what you're doing when you're investing in Lean or Six Sigma, you're training up all these people. You're kind of putting yourself out there as a Six Sigma company. Like you, you kind of have to produce results, right? And if you don't have problems that are going to be, that are going to return when they're solved, are going to return that investment to you then it's really not worth doing. You might as well just do a more simple continuous improvement or lean experiment. So it, maybe maybe that helps. I mean, I, I, No, it does. It does. Yeah. So Erica, I've heard people talk about that uh, sort of rigorous adherence to Six Sigma philosophy is great for a manufacturing firm. Uh, but if you're trying to do creative things, invent, you know, new products, uh, that that very adherence to you know, the uh, the tenets of Six Sigma uh, cause an organization to be less innovative. Is that, mm-hmm. do you think that's true? Is that a subject that those in the Six Sigma community talk about? Well, there are two things I would say to that. One, I think, is that the Six Sigma methodology, the Demaic methodology, is really meant to improve existing processes to deliver a certain value to the customer. It's kind of a, a predetermined, iterative, uh, incremental approach on um, a, on an existing process. It's not about disrupting, redesigning, reimagining much of the time. It's, it's sort of like uh, working within goalposts, right? Mm-hmm. Design is the whole field. It's, it's anything. And, and, you know, up in the air, <laughs> it's, it's, it's everything. So, the Demaic methodology actually has a counterpart for design called Design for Six Sigma, funnily enough. And okay. instead of D-M-A-I-C, it's got uh, D... Uh, I'm looking it up here. Define, measure, analyze, improve, control. I just thought, uh, define, measure, analyze, design, verify instead is the Design for Six Sigma sequence. So mm-hmm. even though you know, innovation and disruption and reimagining is kind of a fundamentally messy creative process. There are still 
design, there are parameters to the design process that you can follow and that you can execute as efficiently as possible. So it's sort of, it's, it gives room for that messy creative process while still optimizing the value of the process in total. And I would say that done properly, uh, the tenants of Six Sigma, like, uh, delivering value to a customer with minimal variation and, and lean would be with minimal waste, that will get you pretty far. But if you need to, say, jump the tracks and switch your business model entirely, I mean, you look at what, uh, some of the, the companies are doing right now, the uh, automotive companies are doing right now, they're changing to a type of car that's optimal for sharing because they know that that's the new, the new wave of the, of the economy is that people are moving to more of a sharing economy. That's mm-hmm. not something that they would have imagined or, or had to deal with 50 years ago. So fundamentally switching tracks and going to a different business model is appropriate at a different resolution of the improvement process, if that makes any sense. So you're either on the factory floor, you're working really hard to just get this one machine working properly and everything else above it is functioning as normal. And you're sort of zooming in and you're making these incremental improvements or you throw everything out and you start all over and you're reimagining your product and you're reimagining your market. Um, there's, there's a place in sort of an interplay between these two sort of sort of uh, complementary forces, I think, of design thinking, which is sort of disrupt, destroy, start over, reinvent, and this continuous improvement thing, which says, take what you've got and make it better. Okay. So I guess, I guess your answer is no, you don't believe it is necessarily in conflict. No. And I think, I think another thing, um, and uh, sorry, who was it that had the lean experience? Uh, that'd be me. That's you. That's Brian? Yes. Okay, so as Brian can tell you, one of the most important things about lean is that you start to look at standardizing processes. So, for example, rather than um, giving one task to 10 different people and knowing that it's going to be done 10 different ways, you start to give them a framework to work with a certain number of steps, kind of a standardized sequence or maybe some tools that everybody uses or a certain method that everybody uses. And that's got a lot of advantages in that you can then um, get people to compare notes. You can transfer work from one place to another. Um, you have a more consistent output when you have a more consistent process. So standardizing is often really vilified. It's thought of as this creativity killer and it's no good and you're controlling people and you're making them into robots and it's, it's inhumane. Like there's a lot of really strong feelings that come up. People's buttons get pushed sometimes around mm-hmm. this idea of standardization. But what's really interesting, and this is something that's to- that Toyota has totally figured out, is that standardization is actually something that allows optimal innovation and engagement and contribution to um, making things better. And the reason is, it's pretty simple, you have to have somewhere to start from if you're going to try to make things better. So if we have one standard that everybody works from and everyone's agreed this is the current best way to do things we now have the ability to innovate and to improve. And when we go and we find, okay, instead of doing step four this way, we're now going to do it this way and it's better. We all agree that it's better. We change the standard, then everybody switches over together. So you've got this sort of unity happening and you've got this um, cohesiveness amongst all the people in your organization 
in theory, right? Everyone's adhering to the standard. The standard gets changed. Everyone moves together. You've got this great ability to innovate and, and be really, um, really uh, agile and really able to uncover new and better ways of doing things because you've got everybody sort of working together. So standardization can actually be an excellent tool as you seek to do things better. I'm really glad you asked me that. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. So Erica, as a, uh, as a professional engineer, you made me aware that there is in Canada an entire month and the entire month of March is National Engineering Month, whereas in the United States, we discovered a couple of weeks ago when we had uh, Stefan Yeager on as a guest that uh, in the U- U.S., we only have National Engineering Week. How How is it you engineers in Canada got an extra three weeks? <laughs> I wish I knew. Maybe it's some uh, payback that we get for using the metric system. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I know historically we used to have an engineering week as well. Um, but we do now have the whole month. It's true. It's the month of March. It's a national celebration. And, um, I've been involved for the last uh, couple of years with national engineering month, Ontario. And, um, we're really committed to helping the public and helping youth understand just what a cool career path it is to get involved in engineering and technology as a, as a career. Um, just how important it is, all the, the, the great things that, uh, that are made possible and that will be made possible in the future. And mm-hmm. one of the things, and, and I, I don't know if this will surprise you at all, uh, one of the things we've really focused on that we've found uh, as, as a key to doing good outreach and to explaining to the public what it is that engineers have that's so special and so important is looking at ways that will be engaging to the public and to children, and especially to children of all backgrounds, of all genders, of all, uh, y- you know, um, different ways of thinking. We don't want to sort of conform to this idea that engineers have to be a certain type of person, um, is to do really good messaging. So we're sort of borrowing a, a page from the PR professional's book to say, you know, what is engineering, um, rather than getting into the specifics of what we do, I don't know, what I do as a Six Sigma person or what someone else does when they do this finite element analysis or what someone else does as a sales engineer when they're putting together a, a specification. Um, rather than getting, getting into those details, which are endlessly fascinating to us, we focus on sort of the bigger picture of um, engineers turn ideas into reality. Um, engineers are creative. Engineers uh, create the future. Uh, what engineers do is, is critical to the health, safety, and happiness of people around the world. So speaking about engineering in those big glowing terms, it's, it's not only really fun, it's actually the most effective way to talk about engineering. So I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the Changing the Conversations uh, campaign. That's actually an American thing. That's the National Academy, National Association of Engineers. Uh, no, National Academy ashamed. of Engineers. Yeah, check it out. It's really good. The The website is actually hilarious. There are a couple of very sort of fun, self-deprecating videos of engineering guys talking about being engineers and kind of playing up these these funny things about, well, doesn't it have to be difficult? Because we're engineers. We can solve really difficult things. And, you know, as opposed to uh, to telling a story that, that everybody can understand, just as an example. So. 
Right. And, and so I know that you, uh, work with young and, and mid career engineers. Did, was it the working on the National Engineering Month outreach activities that got you interested in that? Or was it, did it work the other way around that you, you had an interest in coaching young engineers and that led to the, uh, to the outreach? Yeah. You know, it was actually the other way around. Shortly after I went into business for myself, I started to practice, uh, lean Six Sigma improvement stuff as a freelance consultant, I realized that I'd kind of come a long way in my own personal and professional journey and that I had some insights to share. And I was still, you know, relatively young, about a decade and change into my career. And I felt that there was a lot that I wanted to communicate. And I had had a lot of people come to me and ask for advice. And I began to realize this was something that I could that I could maybe do as a business to reach a wider number of people and maybe get a little bit of passive income from it. Mm-hmm. And once I set that up, my, uh, my page is called engineeryourlife.net, plug, plug. Um, I set that up <laughs> and, you know, I was talking about my job and my profession in these sort of exciting terms in sort of like, you can take the smarts that you have that you learned from all those thermodynamics and, and physics classes that you crammed into your head. And you can use that to, you know, build yourself a great life. Like, and, and I think it's true that we have, great intellectual horsepower that we don't always combine with the sort of self-awareness and sort of life strategy that we would need to be optimally happy. So I use a lot of engineering words and I do it with total sincerity um, to say that, you know, engineers can, can design their lives. They can, they can really um, use what they do, uh, use what they've learned rather to, to, uh, to get the life that they want to have. I was uh, giving a presentation at an Engineers Without Borders conference up here in Canada, and uh, they said, you know, we love the way you're talking about engineering in these sort of non-traditional terms. We think that you'd be a great person to get involved with our outreach efforts. So that's how that that's how that happened. Oh, neat. And so when you say non-traditional terms, uh, can you give me a more a little more detailed sense of how you were you think you were describing it versus how it was typically described? Well, sure. I think it's it's basically just, you know, in a nutshell, what I was just telling you, my philosophy of life design and the fact that engineers don't have to be these people who are sort of walled off from the rest of the world, who sort of have these Dilbert-like, uh, not that we don't love Dilbert, but, you know, it, it's not all we can be. We're not just these people who are focused on the technical and, um, you know, don't necessarily have other skills, other interests, other aspirations, um, other capacities that we can unpack and um, and contributions that we can make to the world. But uh, certainly other groups weren't saying, hey, come be a bunch of Dilberts with us. We all love being nerds. <laughs> other groups weren't saying that? I, that's what I assume. I, you said that they, they liked the fact that your approach was different. And I was trying to figure out what they were doing uh, oh, right. that was not working. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, um, the, my reference there was just that, uh, that's the, the prevailing images and the prevailing stereotypes, you know, the, the, the sort of the availability of access to what engineers do, um, mm-hmm. can be pretty limited and some of it can be pretty caricatured. And it's not that it's something that we're expressing directly. Um, but it, it can be something that if we don't do a good job of doing the PR for ourselves, which sometimes through, um, you know, maybe a lack of interest in explaining ourselves properly or sometimes sort of uh, a bit of a wanting to stay under the radar for whatever reason. 
um, people may get that impression that engineers are sort of, you know, maybe don't even know what we do, uh, right. or that we're sort of walled off that we don't, that we don't have that, uh, that context or that connection. And really nothing could be further from the truth. And I think my big aha moment came actually when I had taken some time off to go traveling and I was in Ecuador in, um, uh, in the middle of the rainforest in, in the jungle working at a wildlife reserve. I was volunteering and I had thought, you know, this whole engineering thing, all this improving processes, all of this optimizing things, all of this saving money, you know, that's fun, but I don't know. I don't know if that's really me. I don't know if that's really the contribution that I want to make. I, I don't, I don't even know if I care about that really. Like, is that really what life's about? Mm-hmm. And I was having this big soul searching time uh, and I was in the jungle and we were taking care of these adorable little monkeys and parrots and things that had been rescued from animal traffickers on, along the Amazon. And I realized that I could not stop improving the processes of the, this wildlife refuge. Like I wanted to make everything super efficient. I right. wanted to put up standardized processes for chopping up the food for the monkeys in the morning. I wanted <laughs> to have better organized uh, duty roster for all the volunteers. And that's when I kind of got it. I was like, this is me. This is what I'm good at. This is what I do. I like doing this. I can do this in a lot of different contexts. I don't just have to do this in a factory or in a mine. I can do this out here in the jungle. Um, maybe the monkeys don't particularly care and the people that were running the, that were running the place were pretty content to let it be disorganized. But I thought, you know, there are probably other organizations and other places where I can contribute these skills and they can really go a long way towards causing, causing, causing other impacts in the world. And so that's when I first got this idea of sort of picking up my engineering toolbox and carrying it over someplace else where there aren't very many engineering toolboxes. And I, I really liked that idea. I guess it was, it was sort of the rebel in me was like, yeah, let's, let's break those boundaries. Let's, let's, let's collapse those silos and those divisions and just say like, how can I really, really be outside the box, but still be me and carry that engineeringness and that dorkiness really proudly um, into a different context that, that, you know, is something creates something really new and, and special. We need more engineers in politics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going there. Um, <laughs> I think I'll leave that to somebody else. But yes, I absolutely agree with you. We had uh, Mark Garneau, who's uh, an engineer and uh, uh, an astronaut here in Canada. We had him running for the leadership of one of our parties. He didn't win, unfortunately, but uh, we were pretty excited for a while there. And Erica, you mentioned a couple times uh, through through this uh conversation about uh, life design. And I take it that that was part of your using your optimization skills in uh, trying to help yourself and, and your clients optimize the effectiveness effectiveness of what they were doing. You got it. That's exactly it. And I'm so glad that you picked up on it because I thought, you know, I think it's a great idea. You you pick up, you know, those those tools and those ideas about optimizing, about defining value, about figuring out problems and what are the root causes and how can I effectively solve them and put systems in place to make sure they don't reoccur. That same basic methodology can be applied to the way that you organize your life, the way that you make decisions, the way you might decide which job to take or not, um, the way you might decide where to live, how to spend your money, how to, you know, how to do pretty much anything. And, uh, and I think, I think that's kind of neat and it can provide a lot of, 
direction and a lot of comfort to people, especially those, you know, sort of zero to five years after graduation from engineering school can be a really difficult time. It can be really um, disorienting. It can be confusing. I know for me personally, I really wasn't sure that I'd chosen the right degree. And I thought, you know, maybe I have to go back to school. Maybe I have to start over again. Maybe this totally isn't for me. And, you know, luckily I couldn't afford it. So I had to just jump in and get a job and, and start. And as it turned out, you know, my, uh, my pr- passion for problem solving really caught fire. And I realized, yeah, this is a great place for me. There, were, there was no mistake here. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, who knows? I, you know, I might have ended up in might have ended up in anthropology school or something, you know, and, and, and I think we lose a lot of good engineers that way because they don't know what it is and they haven't, there isn't a strong enough bridge between what happens in engineering education and what happens outside the classroom for them to really know, yeah, this is great. I, I really like this. This is for me. And, it, and it's going to go someplace that I really want to be. So that's, that's why I started engineering your life. Nobody ever tells people that it's going to be, a world of niches, mm. engineering in particular. Yeah, say some more about that. Well, I mean, <laughs> try, try to describe a typical engineer, and you know, mm. you've already you've already kind of failed at it. I mean, because there there really is no typical engineering task. Um, yeah, and I, it changes. I, yeah, I always get a kick out of reading the. Uh, uh, the comments on Reddit where people, young engineers or people who are in school still are going, well, should I go into this field of engineering or do I need this experience to get the job of my dreams? And I, I every time I read that, I think, who knows? You know, every path is different <laughs> and it's a matter of luck and it's a matter of perseverance and a little grit and who you know and what you've done. And, you know, it, you know it's never a straight line. Who knows whether taking this course or having this certification is going to get you to where you want to be. Yeah, it's true. But when you're, when you're an early 20 something, that does that kind of advice uh, is disheartening. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause you want the formula, right? You want the thing that you can do. That's going to guarantee you that it's all going to work out properly. And that's all you have to do. You just find the answer and you figure it out and you do it. And that's, that's how you think the world works because that's how you've been solving problems in your education for, you know, 16, 17 years. So that, that uncertainty can be super intimidating. I agree. So, so what are the common frustrations? You talked about this zero to five year uh, phase in an engineering career as being really difficult. Um, and so each of us has our own path. And so we know our own experiences, but we don't know whether that's typical. Um, through this coaching, you've certainly had a chance to talk with, with uh, many more young engineers than I have had to chance to talk with recently. What are the common frustrations? Hmm, Common frustrations. I think a lot of them tend to be around that sort of idea of what if I make the wrong choice? Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of just what I was mentioning before about like, I want to figure it out. And I want to use my head to sort of go, well, this is the right answer. And this makes the most sense. Whereas the decision-making process is actually a lot more subtle in that it has to be a blend of like, what do I like doing? What do I care about? What's going to make me happy? You know, reasonably happy anyway. I mean, maybe I don't love everything, but what's going to motivate me to sort of be uh, in a good place when I get up and go to bed in the morning, when I get up and uh, get out of bed in the morning. Um, 
it's a lot about self-awareness, I think. And that's one of the things that I uh, try to help them understand is to get in touch with their strengths. And I think one of the most common problems that I see are that people are not aware of their strengths. They don't know what they're good at because they're so used to being good at it that they <laughs> don't even think about it. <laughs> um, it's sort of like the, you know, the fish that's not aware of the water in which he swims. It, it, you know, it's just so much a part of your world that you think everybody thinks that way and you think everybody is good at the things that you're good at, but that's really not true. And so to get some sort of objective understanding of what it is that you bring to the world that's of value and, and learning to value that without becoming sort of overly full of yourself and overly entitled to an easy road. Mm-hmm. I don't see it too much, to be honest, that that whole idea that kids today are lazy or that they want an automatic pass. They want everything and they want it yesterday kind of thing. Um, I, I see more just maybe just a lack of certainty, like where, where do I fit in? Am I doing the right thing? Is it going to be all right? And, you know, my job is pretty easy in that sense to say, you know what, it's going to be right because it'll be what you choose. And even if you hate your first job, you're still going to learn a lot about yourself in that process. And if you're paying attention, you'll realize why you hated it. And that will become data that you can use and you can apply to make another decision, you know, next time. And it, so there's no such thing as a, as, as the wrong decision or the, the you know, or having a, a horrible first job. In some ways, hating your first job is the best thing that could ever happen to you because it's only going to get better from there on in. <laughs> <laughs> so Erica, do you have any words of advice for young engineers that are uh, early in their careers and, and a little hesitant about, you know, whether they've made the right career choice? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, we don't, we don't often like to ponder a lot. We like to jump in. We're people of action engineers. Often they like to get in and do things. I would say just, just jump in and try something. Maybe take the time to see if you can get to know yourself as you go. Um, what you're, what you really like. Pay attention to why you think you really like it. Take the time to make some goals. I mean, I, I think a lot of coaches and sort of mentor type people will say, have goals, make them smart, you know, um, specific, measurable, uh, realistic, SMRT. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some A sure, word, some R word, some T word. <laughs> exactly. Make goals, know what you want, have a five-year plan. Um, I don't tend to subscribe to that as much. I tend to be more of a person who would say, you know, pay attention to the gut feel of where you're going. Pay attention to something that your intuition might be telling you about like, this is just right. This just feels right. I don't know why, but I'm going to do this and take a chance on some of those things. Put that together with your data driven mind, because we're so used to using our intellect and that's been what has gotten us the prizes as we go through the academic world, as we go through the education system. When you graduate into the real world, you're going to need to learn to use both. You may have grown up thinking that you are a corkscrew because you're so damn good at opening wine bottles. Like it, you've been just opening bottles all your life. You might think that's the only thing you're good at, but really when you look at it, you're going to see that you have other abilities. You have the ability to imagine new things. You have the ability to read people and to 
understand what they're thinking and to think about things from their point of view. And that's going to help you in your career. You have the ability to do all kinds of things. And so work on understanding what those other skills are that are going to balance out this tremendous analytical capacity that you've honed over the years of your engineering education. I would say that's that's maybe the best advice I can give is that you're you're not a corkscrew. You're not a one trick pony. You're a multi tool. You're this Swiss army knife. And you're going to start realizing what those different things are as you put yourself in situations where you have a chance to to shine and to bring out those complementary skills, which are going to make you a better engineer and and a better, you know, more well-rounded, uh, well-fulfilled human being. So take an improv class, play a musical <laughs> instrument, uh, write a book. Like, who cares if it's no good? Just do it anyway. Uh, because those are, those are going to stretch you in really different and interesting directions. Right. And, and I suppose if there was any sort of subtitle for this podcast uh, over all the episodes, it would be that uh, engineers are people too. Uh, so, <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So to, so to those uh, who are young engineers and, and are wondering just what it's all about, yes, many engineers have the same concerns and doubts and fears and, you know, uh, days where they go, what have I gotten myself into? So hang in there. It'll be okay. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, I see that uh, we've run, again, well past the hour mark. And uh, so we should probably uh, think about uh, signing off and letting you get on with uh, with your evening. But uh, if, if someone wanted to get a hold of you, Erica, what would be the proper location for us to send them? Sure. They should check out my website at engineeryourlife.net. Um, or they can follow me on Twitter, uh, engineeryourlife, except the, the your is Y-R on the Twitter handle, not the website. We'll put that in the show notes so that they uh, get it spelled correctly. Amazing. Yep. I would love to hear <laughs> from anyone in that, uh, in that Valley of despair after engineering school, maybe you're just trucking through there and you're not sure if you made the right decision. I'd be more than happy to, uh, to hear from you what you're, what you're thinking. I, I have a lot of, uh, resources, uh, articles and posts and things on my blog and, um, would hope to, to help you in some small way if I can. Because it is going to be okay. Well, Erica, thank you so very much for uh, spending time with us this evening. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Wonderful talking with you. Thank you, Erica. Thank you. The Engineering Commons is produced by Analog Life, LLC, and Engineering Revision. Theme music by Paul Stevenson. For more info, visit theengineeringcommons.com.